It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the. And there's a. Now that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Indy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Man, Eric, has a lot happened since our last podcast. Uh, Alabama handled Notre Dame in the college football playoff semifinal. Several players have either declared for the NFL draft or entered the transfer portal. The Irish hired Cincinnati's Marcus Freeman as their new defensive coordinator. Defensive backs coach Terry Joseph is packing his bags for a similar job in Texas. Notre Dame landed a graduate transfer quarterback from Wisconsin and Jack Cohn. Um, so at this rate, more news could could happen by the time you listen to this podcast, uh, which we're recording a bit after noon on Saturday. Um, but we needed to get together to discuss as many of these topics topics as we could and keep you guys informed. And uh, we'll see when we we decide to get back together for another one after that. Um, Eric, I think I think the the natural place to start is the news from Friday night of, of Marcus Freeman being hired by Notre Dame. What uh, was your reaction to that? Um, what is the significance of, of, of that hiring for Notre Dame? You know, when, um, you know, we've always thought that Clark Lee's time here wasn't going to be much longer. We, we knew that he was very attractive to a lot of schools and that he felt that he was ready. And I base a lot of that on, um, you know, him going for the Boston College job in the last coaching carousel cycle and being the second place finisher in that. So I had kind of had my eye on people that might succeed him. And in the summertime, we did a special section and I did a big piece on Mike Mickens. And one of the people I talked to for the article was Marcus Freeman. And as I was digging into my background on Mike Mickens, I was like, wow, Cincinnati. I, I, I thought Cincinnati was a really good defensive team. I, I kind of keep my eye on them because Mike Denbrock's there and because I'm a voter in the AP. Right. And I just went, wow, they are, they're doing it on defense. They're really good. And then when Marcus and I had a chance to talk about Mike, I could see why he was such a good recruiter. Um, because he charmed me. I mean, we started talking about that we're both from Ohio and where I was from and all this stuff. And I thought, you know, I, he impressed the heck out of me. And then I kind of kept my eye on him all year. Mm -hmm. And when it became apparent that Clark might leave and people asked me who I thought should be the next defensive coordinator, I had two answers, Mike Elston from inside. If you're going to go outside, get Marcus Freeman. And so I think, you know, probably too often the media thinks and trumpets something as a home run hire. Um, I would, 
I'll go stick my neck out and say this is a grand slam hire. Um, I think this is going to be tremendous for Notre Dame football. Um, but I will say this. I don't think he's going to be at Notre Dame for long. You know, he has head coaching aspirations. So get two, three really good years out of him and see where that takes you. Yeah, Mike Elko wasn't here for very long either. And that, I mean, it ended up still working out. Like Clark Lee just took over from there and Clark Lee was here three years and maybe it would have been two if Boston College wanted to hire him. So I think that's going to be the cycle that Notre Dame is in um, as long as they they stay as good as they have been. Um, it's a significant win because, you. I mean, Notre Dame essentially beat out LSU head-to-head um, a year after LSU won the national championship. Um, and with LSU reportedly offering a four-year contract totaling $10 million. So significant financial um, offer there. You would have to assume that Notre Dame was in that ballpark or or more um, to get Marcus Freeman here. So he's he's proven, and, and his resume is what it is. He's proven he can improve defenses and has led units that have finished in the top five and scoring defense twice in the last four seasons. Um, what – I'm curious. And they went. They went from 94th to nine in one year. Yeah, that's that, that's that's incredible. What I'm curious. You did some some more reporting on him yesterday, um, and, and actually leading up into the 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 hiring of, of getting to know people, whether it was his former high school coach or talking to Mike Dembrock uh, about Marcus Freeman. What what stood out to you from those conversations? That obviously you had your own impression of Marcus Freeman from interviewing him. But what did you what did you learn about Marcus Freeman from those discussions? About what a great fit he would be for Notre Dame. Um, that was kind of the first words out of uh, Mike Denbrock's mouth because Mike, when he was working for Tyrone Willingham at Notre Dame, was the lead recruiter on Marcus um, <laughs> out of Dayton, Ohio, Huber, Huber Heights, Ohio, and that was his first impression of Marcus then, and it still is. And I, I remember talking to Marcus about the recruiting thing. And he said he loved Notre Dame. And if, if it wasn't Ohio state, he would have come to Notre Dame. So that, that Marcus gets Notre Dame, you know, you it's not going to be culture shock for him. Yeah. All the, you know, there's so many pluses, but there's also, you know, restrictions, especially when it comes to recruiting, uh, so that was that kind of jumped out at me how good of a recruiter you know he is and I again I kind of got that impression myself when he he and I were on the phone um and he wanted to know more about me you know I mean he and I you know I was flattered you know and uh so um you know the the other thing that was really interesting to me was and this happened with Mike Mickens too, to a certain extent, he had a knee injury that ended his NFL career. Marcus, it was an enlarged heart. And, and the fact that, you know, he was extremely disappointed. He was basically one year into his NFL career and that he channeled all that energy into something. And I think he, he has become a better coach than he ever was as a player. And we're talking about, a guy that was borderline five-star coming out of high school. In fact, Tom Lemming, who we've done a lot of recruiting stuff with, had him as a five-star in his recruiting rankings at that point. Yeah, and I think 
what came in the immediate aftermath of that announcement, which, by the way, was kind of uh, helpful to us that Notre Dame was willing to acknowledge that the Marcus Freeman agreement had been made. That's not – they sort of broke – That's unprecedented, I think. Yeah, broke protocol and, and not waiting for the HR process to totally totally work out. Um, and um, I think I think Pete Tamil maybe tweeted that it was happening a minute or two. I mean, it was – it was a few minutes before Notre Dame sent out its release confirming that it was happening. So um, that this is a done deal. I mean, obviously there's still I's to dot and T's to cross when it comes to the university, but um, Notre Dame has, has announced it as well. Um, but I think shortly after that announcement, people start wondering, okay, what, what does that mean for, for Mike Elston? He was a, a candidate for the defensive coordinator job this time. And last time I know at least, one person, Irish fan forever, reached out um, asking a question, will Mike Elson stay at Notre Dame? And I know others have certainly asked similar questions. Um, I, I guess my viewpoint of it um, is that it's certainly possible that he he decides to leave. Um, I believe that he wants to be a defensive coordinator and eventually a head coach. I don't know that that, that, that has been the case for a while now, but he has stayed at Notre Dame despite that, feeling that he could, this was still the best option for him. Um, but I think – being passed up a couple times now starts to add up. And if he feels like there's another job out there that fits him and um, he wants to pursue and can better his career and and maybe change the trajectory of his career um, from a guy that's been with Brian Kelly since 2004, um, I I could see him leaving. I don't think he would leave just for any job. Um, And I don't know that he feels like he has to leave. Um, And it would certainly be a big loss for Notre Dame to replace because of how well he has done with uh, as the defensive line coach. Um, what, what's your perspective on um, what what's next for Mike Elson, Eric? Well, you know, I know that he was disappointed the other times where there's been openings, both when Mike uh, Elko got the job and and Clark Lee got the job, and I think he understood both instances why Brian went in the direction that he did, even though it hurts and you think, well, I've been a great assistant for, I've done everything. I've, you know, coached different positions because he's coached linebackers. He's been the recruiting coordinator. He's been the special teams coordinator back when he was at Cincinnati and had some special teams coordinator duties at Notre Dame. And I think that he felt like, why not me? And I think he would have interviewed very well. Um, you know, when we did, we did a uh, piece in our, in the summer of the best assistants during the Brian Kelly era. Right. And I either had him, I think I had him two behind Harry. He maybe I had him one for everything that he's been able to bring to the table. But ultimately I think that Brian had some hesitancy about someone with, eight games basically of interim coordinator duty. And in his mind thought it was worth the risk of Mike leaving to try to get both Freeman and Elston on the same staff. See, that's, that's been the jackpot for Brian is that in all those instances, he didn't lose Elston before. Right. And and he had to run the risk of losing him this time. I hope he, uh, makes a great decision for himself and his family. I think he would be, you know, great staying on at Notre Dame. To me, I, I wonder if, let's say, taking the Purdue job is worth 
giving up the money that he has as associate head coach, you know, because there's some money that comes with that title. He's second in command. Um, there are head coaches that have gone from position coach to head coach before. And a couple that jump out at me was our Tyrone Willingham. Uh, Tyrone was never a coordinator. Uh, and I actually think that hurt him when he was at Notre Dame. He was too much of a um, dependent on his coordinators to fix things. And he was able to do it himself. And then Urban Meyer was never a coordinator. I mean, he kind of was. Uh, I mean, he was much more than a wide receivers coach when he was at Notre Dame, but he right. wasn't officially the coordinator when he was at Notre Dame. He was the wide receivers coach, and he went to Bowling Green from there. So it can be done, um, but, you know, I think it's he's in a difficult situation where if he doesn't look for the escape hatch right now, it's he's probably not going to get a lot of head coaching offers down the road, um, at least not to his liking. You know, the kind where there's resources and money committed to winning. Right. You know, you'd have to go somewhere where the backward culture, backward facilities kind of job. Yeah, and uh, if he does go somewhere else, uh, I, Notre Dame should hope to not necessarily play against his defensive lines because he's done a really good job as a defensive line coach. Um, I did some – some research on that all, pretty much all, all of Notre Dame's I mean because he's coached the defensive line so long but all of Notre Dame's good defenses under Kelly have been when when he was coaching the defensive line the the one bad year was Brian Van Gorder's uh first year as the defensive coordinator in 2014 and then Mike Elston got moved to linebackers coach and um the the scoring defensive numbers weren't weren't as good in those seasons obviously as well so um I think uh it's a definitely a move that we're a position that we're going to be watching to see what he does if Notre Dame can convince him to stay or if he decides to, to go elsewhere. Um, one person that is on the move is Terry Joseph, like I mentioned earlier. Um, he is taking a defensive backs coach, uh, passing game coordinator role at Texas, which is similar to the role that he's been uh, ha he's had here at Notre Dame. Um, what? Uh, how much concern? should there be for Notre Dame that they are losing Terry Joseph? And what do you think there is to sort of gain in, in trying to replace him? Well, I think he's done a really good job. I think he's, his contributions have been kind of understated. Um, but I, I would say this, I don't know that Kyle Hamilton comes to Notre Dame if Terry isn't on the staff. Um, I think that was a big, big deal. I think this could turn out to be a positive for both Terry and Notre Dame. You know, in Clark Lee's structure, the safeties and how they play are so important. And Marcus's structure is a little bit different, so he may want to recruit to the safety position a little bit differently and, and coach a little bit differently uh, than what Terry's used to. Um, so I think you know, anytime, I, I think if I were going to be like a sports editor somewhere, I would want people that I would want to bring with me. And I can see you wanting, you know, not to just inherit everybody around you. So I, I think there might be some good there where I think it gets um, interesting and potentially challenging is uh, recruiting. Terry Joseph was really good at at, at 
in the Atlanta area with the Atlanta coaches. And Notre Dame has really kind of put off Florida to, to go to a, the Atlanta metro area and bring a lot of players here. Now, ultimately, other coaches are closers with that, but Terry's the one that's made a lot of the inroads there. So I'm curious, after Terry's been here several years, if the entire staff now has those kind of relationships or if this was really Terry opening doors and then, you know, Brian Kelly and some of the position coaches closing in on these guys. Yeah, I think Notre Dame is certainly going to have to rethink its recruiting map um, without Terry Joseph and especially if Mike Elson leaves. Mike Elson's um, developed relations in a lot of areas uh, while while at Notre Dame, mostly in the Midwest, but also North Carolina and the Charlotte area. Um, he's been in charge of recruiting in New Jersey and in, in Pennsylvania. So a lot of places that Notre Dame likes to to recruit in, Mike Elson has had a hand in, um, and and Terry Joseph was doing some of that as well. I think for if I were to sum up like Terry Joseph's Notre Dame tenure, I think he was a star that burned pretty really bright early on, and then I. I, I think he was getting to the point where maybe it was starting to fade if things weren't working out. I, I mean, not that he couldn't fix things or figure things out, but I think he leaves behind a lot of question marks besides Kyle Hamilton at the safety position. I don't know that he's consistently recruited well enough at safety beyond beyond that. I mean, a lot we're, we're seeing a lot of corners end up being safeties, and maybe that's part of the recruit, recruiting strategy, um, but they didn't have any safeties in the 2020 class. Um, the 2021 class they've signed Justin Walters, a three-star recruit, and Kari G, a former LSU commit who is from the Atlanta area, who Terry Joseph had played a lar- large role in. Um, but I think people have even questioned if he'll stay at safety. Maybe he ends up being a rover. And that was not like Isaiah Pri- Isaiah Pryor was a guy Terry Joseph recruited from um, Ohio State as a grad transfer. And <laughs> Isaiah Pryor didn't make it halfway through the season before he was out of the safety position. So that didn't pan out for Notre Dame. Obviously, we've seen that Houston Griffith has entered the transfer portal, a guy that was beat out by a former cornerback, Sean Crawford, at safety. So there's just a lot of questions about, okay, who are the other guys that you you feel confident in beyond Kyle Hamilton at safety? And so Terry Joseph was going to have his hands full in sorting through that, and whoever replaces him will as well. So he did a good job. Aloe Gilman and Jalen Elliott were great safeties for Notre Dame, um, and he – oversaw those guys and and uh, the secondary was really well this year was a bit of a, a drop off uh, compared to those those last two seasons in terms of the passing efficiency defense um, and that is is as much probably related to personnel as it is coaching but um, you, you got to lean on the coaching to get them to that point but so I think uh, it's an important hire that Notre Dame's going to have to make I think they can still improve it's not like a uh, something that they can't recover from, but he he made a certainly an impact in his in his few years here at Notre Dame um, that they'll have to replace. The next uh, thing I wanted to talk about, Eric, was all the guys that have made NFL decisions. Um, uh, Kurt Heinisch notably decided to stay for a fifth season, um, taking advantage of the the COVID eligibility rules. Um, and, and left guard Aaron Banks and tight end Trump top. Tight end Tommy Tremble, I can, easy for me to say, uh, skipped uh, their remaining eligibility for the NFL draft. Were you surprised at all by any of those decisions? Um, no, I, I I wasn't of those decisions. Um, you know, Aaron was interesting because 
you just never really saw him in the top 10 guards or whatever in the pro rankings. And then maybe Mel Kuyper's last version of those, he jumped up to number five. Um, he, he got incredible amount of all America, uh, team recognition, whether it was first team or second team, he was a consensus all American Tyler. Yes, he uh, was. And so, you know, I, I don't know that that necessarily helps your draft stock, but it certainly, um, give somebody, if there's a debate in the uh, draft room or in the draft boards, it gives them maybe a little bit more ammunition. I mean, he always impressed me as a guy that still has his best football ahead of him. He's an incredible physical specimen who's not an incredible technician yet, and he's getting better and better at it. Um, So that didn't surprise me. Tommy Tremble did. Um, I remember talking to Scott Wright from draftcountdown.com about all the guys, and Tommy wasn't even somebody I was going to ask him about, and he goes, you need to – asked me about Tommy Tremble because he's on the radar. And it surprised me a little bit just because he didn't have a lot of receptions, but his blocking is elite, obviously. Um, and, you know, I had kind of heard he was leaning away from it to right at the end. So I, I'm a little bit surprised with that one. Um, Heinish, when people ask me who, who might benefit from coming back, that was the guy at the top of my list. And the guy that I kind of said maybe to was Nick McLeod on that. Uh, he ended up, you know, deciding to move on. So I didn't think there were going to be many of these people taking advantage of the free COVID year that were expiring eligibility. And really there's only two out of the 13. Yeah. I think, uh, Heinish, I'm not sure how much he can like improve his draft stock. I think it's pretty, pretty well laid out like what he is as a, as a college football player and what he could be at the NFL level. Maybe um, I, I think it's just another year of pounding his body's going to take. I mean, that's not, it's not a glorious job that he's doing down there as a nose guard. Although he, he's improved every year, but you're right. Well, I mean, absolutely. No, I, I think he can still become a better player, but I'm not sure that the ceiling that NFL teams will see for him is necessarily going to raise by another year in the NFL. But I think he, he loves Notre Dame and playing college football and, uh, will be a good leader for for the team. Um, the Beggs thing, I think some of uh, some people had convinced themselves that he would be willing to stay if Notre Dame could move him to left tackle and that would improve his NFL draft stock. I'm just not sure that he is an NFL tackle, so I don't know that that would have necessarily mattered for his NFL draft stock. Um, so I, I, that I, I was never t- totally convinced that that was going to be – like I think he could have played it well for Notre Dame next year, but I'm not sure that – um, that Notre Dame or NFL scouts would have watched that and said, okay, we can draft Aaron Banks as an NFL tackle now. I'm just not, I'm just, I think he's just a better guard. Um, and I'm curious to see what, where, where, where he ends up being drafted. I, I, maybe this is, uh, not giving draft analysts enough credit, but I, I would, I would love to know how much guard tape they watch early in the process until they know which guards are coming out. I mean, I think that would probably be one of the positions they probably don't spend as much time on. I, that may be an incorrect assumption, but um, I, I would think that they probably are more uh, knowledgeable or were earlier in the process of, of skill position players and even offensive tackles because those are more talked about guys than, than the guys that play guard. So I think and valued. Yeah. And so I, I think that um, that, that could change. We'll, we'll see. And obviously all that really matters is what NFL guys say about him, not, 
the draft analysts themselves. And then with Tremble, I'm a, I agree with you. I I am a bit surprised just based off of sort of the holes that you see in his game as a, as a pass catcher. He struggled to consistently catch the ball with some drops, and even when he was able to haul it in sometimes, it weren't necessarily clean catches. Um, and so I think he certainly has room for improvement there, but he really gets after as a blocker. I, I, I know it, it sometimes maybe got old hearing him complimented about it so much, but the hype was, was real there. He was, he was as, as good of a blocker that there was in college football at the tight end position. And certainly will be, that will be value, a valued uh, asset at the NFL level. So uh, very curious to see where he lands in the NFL draft as well. Um, but um, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't feel that strongly to like say that guys made the wrong decision, especially after this year of, of wanting to go to the NFL. Yeah, because you don't know what college football is going to be like right. next year. And if you're dealing with all the COVID stuff still, wouldn't you rather be getting paid for it than you know, kind of stuck on campus living by yourself and you know all the garbage that goes along with that? There was a lot of sacrifices those kids made. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the NFL wants to admit. I think all the leagues are being kind of squeamish about it, but I imagine your chance of getting the vaccine sooner rather than later would improve being an NFL player as opposed to to being a college football player. But maybe that that's not how everything works out with that. But um, that would be my guess. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on just a little bit, we'll, we'll get in with a question later um, from from Twitter. But was Jack Cohn coming in as the grad transfer? Um, what did you think of Notre Dame's decision to to sort of pluck him out of out of the transfer portal as their grad transfer quarterback? Well, when people had asked me about it before, I thought Notre Dame would wait until after spring, but I thought the thing that would trigger them to maybe look earlier is if Brendan Clark's knee was, you know, more iffy than what they've kind of defined it to be. You know, Brian Kelly kind of said, we're going to take a look after the season, but certainly, I mean, if, if uh, Ian Book had gone down in the Alabama game, Drew Pine was going to march in there. It wasn't going to be Brendan Clark. So the timing of it was interesting to me. I, I thought that they would, again, if Brendan Clark's knee wasn't a big deal, that they'd want to take a long look at those three guys and then add somebody after spring, which there's usually some pretty good guys floating around right. at that point. Um, now you're you're really committed to giving Jack Cohn a pretty long look in the spring. Yeah, I think I, I'm going into it honestly. I don't know that I had too much knowledge of Jack Cohn, and I had seen him play before as Wisconsin's quarterback. But I, I I don't even know that I was clued in too much of whether he got sort of he lost the job to Grant Mertz, and then obviously he, I learned that he had a foot injury before the this season started that that uh, sidelined him and then sort of made way for Graham Mertz. And then he didn't, um, even though he ended, ended the season healthy, didn't push um, to take that job away from, from Graham Mertz. And that opened the door for him to grad transfer somewhere. I'm curious to see how he fits in Notre Dame's offense. Um, obviously Wisconsin is very run heavy and, and more of the old school, traditional NFL style. Um, whereas Notre Dame still does some of those kinds of things. Um, as we saw even this past year with Ian Book, and what is what does the offense look like if Jack Cohn is the quarterback? Do you change the offense much, or, or is he more versatile that he can handle a, a different type of offense and more spread uh, spread looks 
um, in, in Notre Dame's offense. He didn't run the ball much at all at, at Wisconsin. Ran it backwards. <laughs> he was getting sacked and not running forward very often. Um, but he, he does like to stand in the pocket and stay in there as long as he can. So I think that leads to some of those sacks, um, but it also leads him to maybe giving his receivers more chances um, than some quarterbacks would. Um, so I think there's lots – I think it, it makes sense for Notre Dame to pursue him. I'm not – I don't know if Jack Cohn is the best transfer quarterback that Notre Dame could have could have added in this offseason cycle. Um, and uh, I think there's still plenty of questions left of what he looks like in Notre Dame's offense. Um, but he should be, in theory, still the leader to take the job. But I don't know that, that I would necessarily guarantee that. If, if Tyler Buckner comes in and is, is great, then <laughs> – Sorry, Jack, but this is this is the Tyler Buckner show. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, let's touch on the, the the sort of wave of transfers that have happened since the end of the season. Um, I believe at last count, there's seven guys. I'm maybe miscounting that um, that have entered the transfer portal since then. Kyler Grunhard, um, who's already announced that he'll be going to Kansas. Isaiah Rutherford, who said but the cornerback who will be going to Arizona running back, Jameer Smith wide receiver, Jafar Armstrong, safety, Houston Griffith defensive end, Ovia Gofu and linebacker, Jack lamb. I know plenty of people were sort of reaching out earlier in the week and that's died down now with the good news of Marcus Freeman. Um, maybe a little bit worried that what's going on in Notre Dame's program. Is this a concern? What is, what is your perspective on that, Eric? Do you think that this is overly concerning how many guys have, are trying to transfer out uh, after the, this past season? Not when you do the math. And again, I'm not a math wizard, but I can add and subtract. And <laughs> when you have a recruiting class, okay, so we're assuming Logan Diggs is still in it, the running back from Louisiana and Jack Cohn counts. So you're bringing in 28 bodies and you had 13 players with expiring eligibility. Now they don't, if you brought all those guys back under the COVID rule, they wouldn't count against your, but everybody else does count. So you had to find 28 departures to, to make up for those 28 people coming in. Um, and so, you know, and, and the exemptions. So you had to have 15 de departures of some, either people going pro early, Jeremiah Wusukormoa, Banks, that group, or you had to um, have transfers or medical hardships. So, I mean, we're still not down to 85 at this point. So there's going to be more of these. So from that standpoint, I'm not surprised. In some of the people that are in the portal surprised me a little bit. I don't know their story yet because there's been so much going on since the Alabama game, there hasn't really been time to kind of backflow and, and find out why these people are. Right. Leaving. Some of them are pretty easy. I mean, they just want to play. Right. Um, but you know, there's, there's a few where you just really. Okay. Yeah. I, I haven't kept track of like what's going on in other programs. If they're also experiencing a lot of, a lot, a lot of transfers. The transfer portal has never been fuller than it is. Now. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. That's my general sense. I haven't like tracked it in any sort of numerical way. Yeah. There are people that have, and it's <laughs> stunning how many people are in there. And uh, I just think like you have to take into account into 
into the equation, like everything that's going like this has probably been the worst season to be a college football player since ever, maybe. You know what I mean? Like there's not World War II, maybe. Especially if you're not playing. This was not I mean, even for the guys that were playing, this was a grind. The guys that weren't playing, they were not having a good time. I'm I'm fairly certain of that. I mean, you you try to stay in it, even if you're having a good season, you're still excited about what happens on game days and, and you go through practices, but you just don't have the 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 fun that surrounds being a college student that you normally get to um, because of the pandemic. So I think that elevates sort of the anxiety levels and pushes kids toward wanting to, to try something new. Um, and, and then you add in the COVID eligibility and these guys can play multiple seasons at their transfer destinations. Um, it, it sort of. Well, they, they lose the COVID. They lose the COVID season if they transfer or, or they, they, they count. I right. shouldn't say they lose it. They, they're countable. They they're not they're not um, exempt. But yeah, they they right. They're, they're, they will run into potential scholarship crunch issues that they're not going to necessarily have the same like pick of the litter um, of wherever they want to go. They might have to play at programs that they might not have assumed would right. they would be able to transfer to. But, but right. But they're, it's, they're, it's really the guys with expiring. Jack Cohn would not have counted at Wisconsin. He does count against 85 at Notre Dame. Right. And and to me, like, obviously, like you mentioned, there are guys that potentially could have played next season for Notre Dame, whether it's Houston Griffith or Obi Gofu or maybe even Jack Lamb or Isaiah Rutherford. I mean, there's those are guys that um, were highly recruited guys that hadn't necessarily, um, I guess, Hand out. Ovia Gofi was the, the, I guess, the lowest ranked of that of that group, but he had actually played the most of anyone in that group, and was certainly probably going to be in a rotation at defensive end next season for Notre Dame. Um, but th- at least like these have been sort of spread out amongst the position groups. It's not like you're seeing like three defensive ends leaving or three wide receivers leaving. Um, so they're not piling up. So I don't know that they leave like giant holes on the the depth chart. Um, but I I, I think. Uh, this is just kind of the situation that many programs are in. And just because you made it to the college football, didn't mean you were going to be immune to, uh, to that. Yeah. W- one thing that I talked to Dennis Dodd about from cbssports.com because Dennis is the transfer expert is that this group is going to benefit from the change in rule, the one-time transfer exemption. So even though that hasn't been formally passed, it's supposed to pass this month. It's supposed to go into effect in August. And so these, this is the first group of players that they don't have to hire a lawyer to be (laughs) able to not have to sit out a season. Right. So I think that is making transferring much more appealing. Now it'll be curious in a few years, if that settles down a little bit back to the norm, that, that, that doesn't seem quite as appealing, but, you know, there, there's not that firewall of having to sit out a year that would make you think twice about transferring. Yeah, some some of these guys from Notre Dame will probably graduate before they 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 actually transfer. A bunch of them will. So I don't. So that may not might not be the case for all these guys, but it could influence other guys to 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 leave as well. So I think that that is definitely a, a good point. That um, it's it sort of pretty much everything is sort of coming together for people who want to transfer right now. And so it's, uh, it's good. The transfer portal is booming and uh, there's going to be plenty more to come. Um, l- lastly, before we get into uh, listener questions, 
I wanted to touch on the Alabama game. I know it seems so long ago at this point, uh, but we haven't had a podcast since then. What was your what were your biggest takeaways from from how that game played out? It it was it went pretty much how I expected it to. Um, so what would be my takeaway? My takeaway is that Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State are still on a different level than everybody else, and college football's got to figure out how to if that's good for college football or if there needs to be some way to help the 200 and some or the 100 and gosh 127 other teams that aren't those three teams you know you have two other programs recruiting kind of consistently at their level um georgia and lsu um lsu's won national championship but they've only been to the playoff once Georgia doesn't seem to be able to maximize its talent. Maybe some of that has to do with the way the quarterback position's gone there um, and and the way Kirby Smart coaches in games. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's talk about would an eight-team playoff make it more – make it more that – recruits and so forth would want to go to other schools where you'd even out the talent a little bit. I was talking to somebody that I really respect as far as talent evaluation. And what they told me was that there is, there's a big, big cliff between those three and most everybody else, certainly Notre Dame and Oklahoma, which are two teams that have been there more than once. And what happens is you get into these games and things that haven't been weaknesses for you all year become weaknesses they find those weaknesses because those teams have great coaches that can spot your weaknesses and they have the personnel to be able to make you pay for them yeah, and exploit and, and and i think a really good um example of that is the playoff game from a couple years ago with clemson where as soon as julian love was out of the game they they knew exactly where to throw the ball. It was where Julian Love replacement, I'm sorry, Dante Vaughn, was playing. And it didn't matter which receiver. It was whoever he was going to be lining up against. They were going to go after that, and they were able to go after some of Notre Dame's other weaknesses. So they're just in a position to really leverage those kind of things, and that's kind of what happened in this game. I think um, the thing that kind of surprised me was the difference between Notre Dame fans' reaction to the game and people outside of the Notre Dame fandom. The people outside of the Notre Dame fandom, I think, largely thought Notre Dame had a really darn good season, and this was something to build upon. And I think a lot of Notre Dame fans kind of took it as, are we ever, ever, ever going to win a national championship? Yeah, I mean, I think there are still – I mean, there's still a lot of people that will mock – that aren't Notre Dame fans that will kind of mock Notre Dame continuing to do this. And when you see the graphic of what yeah. they've done before some of the kids on the team were born um, in, in in BC in playoff – or uh, New Year's Six Bowls, um, then I think, like, it just gets shared and it becomes like a Twitter joke and stuff like that. But I, I think – I think they're – I think what's frustrating – is for Notre Dame fans is that it was predictable the outcome like 
like you mentioned, we it, what happened is kind of what we expected to happen. And to me, I, I think some people view that as sort of a bad thing. It's like they know the ceiling for this team and that there's no way that they can get past that ceiling. Um, whereas I don't know that I agree with that. I, I believe that it, there there is a ceiling on this program right now, but it can be elevated. I, I think obviously Notre Dame can get to the playoff, but right now um, I'm not sure that they can win a, col- a, a college football playoff um, if they don't make – one more or two more. I don't know how you number the strides, significant strides to, to, to get to that level um, that Alabama and Clemson are at. And I, I'm not sure that they will ever, ever get to the level of where Alabama's at of being in the playoff is almost a yearly, yearly thing. I'm not sure that Notre Dame will get there. I think that Notre Dame can, can win a national championship. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do what Alabama does. And I think, I mean, obviously you have to win one to get to even contemplate getting to where Alabama is, but uh, there's still a gap there. And that was obvious in the game, certainly giving up three touchdowns to Alabama's offense in the first three possessions was never going to be a winning recipe for Notre Dame. Um, But I I think that um, Notre Dame is still in a good spot. um, And and just because they haven't been able to break through yet, I don't think that it's worth giving up on, but it is, it is a clear message to Notre Dame of, okay, listen, you, you have to get better. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't good enough. And um, right. if you had a chance to, to uh, somehow pull off a victory against Alabama, you're still going to have to win another game like that. It's not right. winning one game. You got to do it twice. Um, so there's, there's still a significant hurdle that Notre Dame needs to clear to win a national championship. And it, yeah, it was easier in the BCS format to, because you just had to be, you know, David versus Goliath. You had to be David on one game. Now you got to be David at least a couple of games for Notre Dame. They really had to be David four times this year. Um, I I think the other thing is, you know, Brian Kelly looked at his personnel and said, what's the best way to get to the playoff. And for them, they went way out of kind of Brian Kelly's tendencies and decided to become this ball control complimentary football team that is what national champions used to look like in the BCS era. And that model got them there. And I really think the national championship uh, run was then the referendum of whether that you could win games at that level as this ball control complimentary football team. And I would say that that referendum failed, that Notre Dame's next step they're going to have to be more dynamic at quarterback. And that's not anything to take away from me and book. They're going to need somebody that's a top 10 guy in passing efficiency. Um, And they're going to have to be born dynamic on the outside with their outside receivers, because that's the model that wins games at the playoff at this point. So they're going to have to start looking more like that kind of team. That doesn't mean you can't be ball control and stretches, or ball control in certain games of your season. But if you're going to win there, you need that element of that dynamic offense. And, you know, that's not where uh, Notre Dame is right now. All right, let's uh, move on to questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's – you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one we have is from at Brett Kovach. 
with Freeman being announced as the defensive coordinator and linebackers coach, what are the chances that Nick Lazinski leaves now? Well, Nick is an incredibly talented from all the people that I've talked to and, and, and the stories I've read about him, an incredible, talented coach who's really been kind of spinning his wheels um, in terms of moving up coaching ladders. And, and I think he's ready for a full-time job. He's had a full-time linebackers job, I think, at Lafayette. Uh, he's been grad assistant. He's been an analyst. And he's ready for something. I mean, there is a chance that, um, you know, Marcus Freeman really is impressed by him and keeps him on as the safeties coach. You know, because of the COVID situation, he was actually able to recruit some this year um, as an analyst. They made allowances for, for that. And he did a very good job. He did a great job of keeping Prince Colley, for example, on board. Uh, the linebacker from Tennessee. Uh, if not, I mean, he's going to have options. He probably might be able to go with Clark Lee to Vanderbilt in some form or fashion. When I say he can coach safeties, I mean, he was a he was a college defensive back. He was a walk-on defensive back, so it wouldn't be um, – right. and, and he's a guy that knows the big picture part of the defense. I think ultimately linebacker is the best place for him to be coaching, but um, I would kind of expect him not to stay on uh that he would get a full-time job somewhere yeah i think i think if he's getting full-time assistant jobs at at fbs programs he needs to take advantage of that i'm not sure i don't know if he would get hired as an fbs linebackers coach or not fbs uh a power five uh linebackers coach right now just because he hasn't been a full-time assistant yet but maybe i mean i'm sure he would have good recommendations so maybe that improves his his possibility of that i, I think you it made sense if, for instance, Mike Elston took over as defensive coordinator and he's still here at Notre Dame and familiar with the system and familiar with the players that he could get promoted to linebackers coach. Um, I'm not sure what that means for him at Notre Dame. I think, I mean, in theory, I mean, Mike Mickens could be the entire secondary coach and you have two linebacker coaches if you, if you wanted to do something like that or, or have him work with both the linebackers and the safeties. I mean, there's there are different ways you could handle that if you really wanted him to remain on staff. Um, so I, I think uh, um, he, it sounds like he has a bright future as a coach. Um, I'm not sure if it will be at Notre Dame next season, but um, certainly uh, he was, he was a valued member of Clark Lee's Clark Lee's coaching staff. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Any insight into the transfers of Houston Griffith and Ovia Gofu? Both seemed in line for a lot of playing time with Griffith potentially starting. Were they worried about being beaten out by younger players or transfers or unhappy about something other than playing time? Um, I wish I had a better answer. I mean, that's something, again, I'm going to have to go back and find out what, what's going on there. I mean, I'd be guessing a little bit with Houston – you know, I'm almost surprised it didn't happen before now just because, uh, you know, he's moved around positions a lot. It hasn't happened for him. Uh, I can remember at least the last two years, Brian Kelly saying he was the best worker in the weight room. So it's not a it's not a work ethic. It's not an attitude thing. I don't even think it's a talent thing. I, I don't know what's going on that he hasn't been able to get to the top of the depth chart. But there was an absolute avenue to get there this year, 
And there is absolutely that opportunity next year. So I think maybe he just feels like he needs to get a start in a different system, a fresh start somewhere and try to make it happen somewhere else. Uh, and I wouldn't bet against him. You know, Ovi is a head scratcher too, because at, at the very least, he was going to be a rotation player. I think Isaiah Foskey was going to be the, the starter at defensive end, but Ovi would have played a lot. So again, I mean, maybe it's a thing. I know that he's looking at Michigan. Maybe it's a thing of just wanting to be close, closer to home. Although Notre Dame's not that far from Detroit. Um, and just wanting to to be around family. I, you know, I think some of these transfers nationwide were triggered by COVID, especially with kids that lived a long way from home, wanting to be closer to family and so forth, not knowing how long this whole thing's going to last. Yeah, I, I, I don't have incredible insight into their, their into Houston or Ob's perspective yet. I, I would, I, I think. You, you nailed certainly the the challenges that Houston Griffith had in, in getting into the lineup. I, I would be curious. I mean, if if you're Marcus Freeman and whoever your safeties coach is, um, if Houston Griffith hasn't decided to go somewhere else yet or hasn't picked a transfer destination yet, and you don't think you can bring in a uh, a better like safety grad transfer, or you don't have better safety options on your roster. Maybe you, you see if a new coaching staff um, is willing to to change his mind if he's willing to stay at Notre Dame. I, I don't know that that would necessarily work out um, or if Houston has any interest in that, but I think it, it would, it would make sense to at least consider that um, if, if you're Notre Dame. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ovi was certainly going to, like we said earlier, play in a rotation um, at defensive end for Notre Dame. Maybe he didn't like um, that. Isaiah Foskey had kind of jumped over him. Um, I, I thought that you could sort of have like a three headed defensive end monster with, with uh Ovi and Isaiah Foskey and, and Justin Adam Malola and maybe Foskey could sort of go back and forth between sides of the, of the, the defensive end positions. And cause I think he could play both strong side and weak side, but um, we, uh, we, we won't get to see that. Notre Dame does have other options at defensive end, but a, a lot of inexperienced guys um, at that um, Viper defensive end position. We'll see what, what names Marcus Freeman has for his, his, his positions that that whether they not share the same names as, as what Clark Lee had, but I'm I'm willing to give up Viper. I've never been a you're not a big you're not a big Viper guy, Viper. but they're gonna tear Rover out of our hands, right? Like we we'll go we'll go screaming if they take the Rover. <laughs> Doesn't like call a guy a guy a Rover. Um, so yeah, I think that that's uh, where things are at with that. I, I think hopefully we can learn more about. They're everyone's sort of individual situations more moving forward, but um, I think guys are trying to figure out what's best for them right now. Next question is from at Hayden Adams ND with so much turnover on the roster for next season, which position group do you identify as the biggest worry other than quarterback and which as the biggest strength? Uh, well, before I move on to my answer, I do have a postscript from the last question. My least favorite were the dog and the cat linebackers. <laughs> you weren't a big dog and cat linebacker yet. No. And my former radio partner, Darren, could never keep those straight. <laughs> he always mixed them up. <laughs> so biggest worry, I would start with safety. Um, and then I would say offensive line, uh, not because of talent, but because of having so many new people and maybe all – if you move Patterson to outside, 
having everybody in new places. And then I would say, you know, we're excluding quarterback here. I would say cornerback just because, you know, Nick McLeod decided to move on. You got Clarence Lewis and then who else is going to be there, right? We, we haven't been able to figure out what happened to Tariq Bracey at the end of the season, but he obviously fell out of favor with the coaching staff. So I don't know if he's even going to be here. Uh, there's some good talent there, but it's going to be pretty young guys playing there. And Isaiah Rutherford was a guy that I thought was more than just a roster filler. I thought he was a guy that had some potential. So those are my positions in the strengths. I think running back uh, will be a strength and defensive line. And to a certain extent, tight end, even with Tommy Tremble gone, if Tommy Tremble had stayed tight end would be way up there, but even with him gone, they have numbers, they have talent. I mean, just Michael Mayer alone makes it a strength, right? <laughs> yeah, Michael Mayer alone. But, I mean, Kevin Bauman would have played a lot somewhere yeah. else as a true freshman this year. Yeah. And then you bring in a couple of really interesting prospects and in Kane Barong and um, Mitchell Evans. Evans is a six foot seven kid that's played a lot of quarterback. Kane Barong actually used to be a quarterback, too. Smaller, smaller frame right now, 6'3", I think 215 would – what he was listed at at the end of his high school season. But, you know, and, and then George Takis, the little moments that George has had have been, I, I would say, I would think that he would be at least as functional as Brock Wright in that offense. Yeah. Yeah. I think George is a, is a solid player. He, I don't think he's not as fluid as a tight end, I would say as maybe some of those other guys, but yeah, he's, he, he's going to get out there and work hard and um, he can, um, be a reliable tight end. I think uh, he's not going to be their number one tight end, but I think uh, they can uh, feel feel confident in him being on the field. Um, my my suggestions pretty much lined up exactly with what you you said. I I, I was I just said the entire secondary as a whole was the biggest concern with both the cornerbacks and safeties sort of cheating, putting those two together. Um, outside of Kyle Hamilton and presumably an improved year from Clarence Lewis. I'm not sure what, what you're looking at for, for Notre Dame secondary. I think the offensive line has to be high up there as well. Um, I would, I guess, couch my worry in that I'm not, I think they do have talented guys there. I'm just not sure what it's going to look like and they're all inexperienced. So there's a, definitely a chance of that not going as well as, as one would hope. They need a spring practice. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, spring practices. Be, yeah. If spring practice were canceled for this offensive line, they would be in, Probably some big trouble. Um, I, I I think running back is the biggest strength by a decent margin, um, and, and defensive line is probably second on that list, in my opinion. Uh, next question is from Joe at Sad Irish Fan Thirteen. Will the offensive line be able to keep that high standard of play they've built over the past few years, even though they're going to be significantly younger? Bar younger Bar Patterson. Notre Dame has recruited very well on the offensive line, so will there be will there actually be a huge drop up? drop off or just marginal. Wow. That was, I get a D for reading that question. <laughs> you do get a D for reading that question. Um, I, I, again, I like the talent. I like the way that Notre Dame's been able to stack talent. If there's a position group where they've been able to do some of the things that Alabama, Ohio state and Clemson do it's offensive line. They bring four stars and five stars in and, and even guys that are, really cool project three stars and they stack them and those guys are willing to wait their turn. They're not looking to jump in the transfer portal. 
and then they're ready when it's their time. The Again, the, the thought is, what's the chemistry going to be like? So much of being a really good offensive line is five people acting as one and then not having a weakest link. And uh, so I think it's going to take some time, even if they have spring practice, even if they have a great summer together. I think we're going to be into October and Notre Dame's end of September through October stretch is its toughest part of the season um, before we see them start to kind of hit their stride together. So um, I just think it's, it's as great as the talent is, as great as the technique will be, just getting that chemistry in sync is going to take some time. Yeah, I think I, w- I would sort of describe the drop-off as significant. Um, and I, I think they can narrow that, that gap but it's hard to have a firm conviction in that because we missed out on a year of watching these backups develop. We we've seen so little of these guys that are, that are, that will be asked to be um, uh, potentially starting next season um, because of just the lack of spring and, and fall practice access from this past year. So we're, we're at this point we're, we're relying on blind faith and either from what we hear from the folks behind the scenes or from Brian Kelly and press conferences and that, Obviously, that applies beyond the offensive line, too, but it's probably no more um, important in terms of trying to figure out what's going to happen next season than on the offensive line. Um, I really like Zeke Carell. I thought he played well. Um, I, I think he made me look, made me and others look smart for saying that he was the better center option for Notre Dame over Josh Lugg uh, to end the season when Jarrett Patterson went down. Um, I think Lugg can be good. Uh, I'm not sure if he will be a great player. I think it may depend on what position they end up playing. I think he's a better tackle than a guard. Um, they're going to have to move some guys around. I think if it's the best, if, if Jeff Quinn sticks to the motto of playing your best five, I think we have a decent idea that those three are Zeke, three of those guys are Zeke Carell, Jarrett Patterson, and Josh Lugg. But I, I don't know for a certainty how those guys will line up. And that may depend on who are the next two guys of which, which are their best positions and, and what are they best suited for? I think um, Dylan Gibbons at guard as a guy who's had some experience, may have a chance to, to, to fit into the starting lineup. Um, is there another guard or someone better at tackle than Josh Lug? They, they have guys that I like long-term. I'm just not sure where they're at right now, um, whether that's Quinn Carroll um, or, or Tosh Baker, especially at tackle. I think they have – Andrew Christoffic. They, they have better – better talent at tackle for next year than they do at guard for next year. Although I really like guys like Blake Fisher and Rocco Spindler as potential guards down the line. I'm not sure if those guys can crack the starting lineup as freshmen. So there's a lot of questions there and I don't know that we have convincing answers yet. And uh, that'll be one of the biggest um, questions of the off season that we'll be tracking. Uh, a side note, Marcus Freeman has a son named Rocco. He has six kids and all right, there you go. And uh, there will be plenty of Rocco's Pizza to go around for everyone. Um, next question we have is an email from Charles W. Wolf. Was the decision to take a second quarterback in the 2021 recruiting class based more on talent or more about concerns with Brendan Clark's knee? Also, is the Jack Cohn signing an indication that perhaps the coaching staff is worried about how little football Tyler Buckner has actually played at quarterback? I think most people agree the talent is there, but perhaps the coaches aren't ready to hand over the keys right away. Um, so I think these are, uh, to me, these are two big enough questions. I think we probably should separate them out. 
Um, so let, let's tackle the taking a second quarterback in the 2021 recruiting class. I, I know I have a fairly strong opinion on that. I don't know what your thoughts are on Go that. Go ahead. You start. And then okay. I'll... I, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't feel great about it, but I, I, in saying this because it's critical of Ron Paulus, the third as a prospect, but uh, the whole, that whole signing I, I'm very dubious of. I, if, if they felt an urgent need for a second quarterback, I'm not sure that Ron Paulus, the third was someone that they would have settled for. And so I, it was a very, a very strange situation. In my opinion, I feel bad. Like I meant criticizing a, a, a kid that's coming in um, because he's a nice kid we covered him as a, as a quarterback at local Penn high school here. Um, he, he, he doesn't move well. Um, and he wasn't even the best local quarterback that I covered in, in high school games this past season. Um, so that, that isn't necessarily a guy you would think would be a scholarship player on Notre Dame's roster. I, I think my opinion would have been Notre Dame shouldn't have put him on scholarship and just let him join the team as a walk-on and um, take advantage of whatever program Notre Dame has available considering his dad works at the university. Um, I don't know that they would have had to break the bank for Ron Paulus to be a student at Notre Dame um, and be a, a quarterback on the roster. So I think by doing that, they sort of opened him and themselves up to this criticism, which I think could have been easily avoided. Um, and so that, that was a surprising move to me. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I just don't, I just don't totally buy Even Brian Kelly said on tiny day that we, we knew early on, we wanted two quarterbacks and I, if they wanted that, they kept it a very close secret. And I'm not even sure that Tyler Buckner knew that. <laughs> right. Um, as far as the four quarterbacks, the thing that's also interesting to me, and I won't parrot what you said there because I think you said it well, is if the all the redshirt rules and COVID rules are applied, all four of those quarterbacks are in the freshman class or have freshman eligibility. They all have technically four years left uh, at least. They all be freshman eligibility, which as they move through the stages – Notre Dame's quarterback recruiting behind them is going to be have to be really important because if they're all in the same stage, are they all going to be they're happy? All, they're not all staying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not all staying. It's hard. If if you're staggered in classes, it's a little bit different. Um, but so that's all I'll have to say. I'll echo what you had to say on the other stuff uh, with regard to four quarterbacks. As it relates to Jack Cohn and whether that's an indication of how little football Tyler Buckner has actually played at quarterback. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's part of that. I think it's part of Brendan Clark's knee. Um, and I think, you know, the thing about grad transfer quarterbacks that a lot of people don't realize is they don't always end up being the starter. Um, you know, the, um, kid from Stanford that went down to Mississippi state's name, um, is escaping me, but, uh, he started that first game beat LSU and then he ended up getting beat out. Malik Zaire got beat out at Florida. Um, you know, there were times where Everett Golson got benched at Florida state when he grad transferred. There's a lot of them that don't, uh, Tate Martell. I don't think he was a grad transfer, but when he transferred to Miami, it doesn't always work out that they're a starter. And I think that he's just been promised that he can compete to be the starter, I think is a good thing. Uh, and again, if Brendan Clark's knee was completely healthy, if 
Tyler Buckner tore it up at La Mesa Helix High School this fall, and they played a season. Maybe you view view the need for a, a grad transfer quarterback a little bit differently. But again, he's only going to be here one year. So right. if, if he had two years of eligibility, then maybe those young quarterbacks get itchy and question the um, the uh, the commitment to them. Uh, but with him just being here one year and not being guaranteed to be the starter, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, the, the name that was escaping you was KJ Costello from Stanford, yeah. transferred to Mississippi State. Um, I think my question is is just is Jack Cohn the right guy? I think, and we'll we'll certainly find out. It did it didn't make a, a sense to me uh, to give Tyler Buckner a pretty clear path to the starting job, and I, I think it, I think it says more about either whether it's related to Brendan Clark's knee injury or his ability to play as the starter next year and, and Drew Pine, I think it, they Notre Dame believes Jack Cohn will give Tyler Buckner better competition. Um, and uh, they won't, they won't just like fall on Tyler Buckner as a default option next year. If he becomes the starting quarterback now, I think he'll, he'll sort of truly earn it against a guy like Jack Cohn. Whereas I think, there could have been a situation next year where Tyler Buckner could have come in with pretty little resistance if they didn't bring in a grad transfer quarterback and win that job. And I think it's going to be better for Tyler Buckner in the long term um, to whether or not he beats Jack Cohen out or sits. I think he'll have at that added pressure of trying to to make that that happen. And I think that that'll be important for him. And I, I just think like setting up your program to hope a freshman quarterback comes in and starts for you. I just think is is sort of a bad bad way to way to go and so I, I didn't like that that as a possibility so that's why I thought make, pursuing a grad transfer makes sense and um, I think your anyone's guess is as good as ours of whether or not Jack Cohn will be um, the right answer for Notre Dame as, as that guy. I was stunned at how many people on our beat felt like this was a home run you know I, I think it could turn out to be that way but I'm like pump the brakes <laughs> you know seriously yeah, I think I think I felt a little bit better about it after doing more research and learning more about him and talking to his former high school coach. And, and sometimes, I mean, that's always dangerous because it's not like his former high school coach is going to tell you, "Well, I don't think I don't think Jack's going to make it at Notre Dame." Like that's that's not the the viewpoint you're going to get um, from someone that coached him and is as close to him as his high school coach was, and even helped him through this grad transfer process. So, I think. Uh, I think like I think we've been pretty clear that we do have questions about whether or not that's going to work and. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to sort of view that. Especially when Tyler Buckner's skill set is so different than his. Yeah, that, I mean, that's – and I know you and I have talked about this privately previously, is that – I guess it depends on what kind of offense Jack Cohn can run at Notre Dame. Do you have to, like, have a different outlook for your offense if Jack Cohn is the quarter, quarterback, whether Tyler Buckner is your offense? And obviously I think if you have a freshman as the quarterback, that's going to influence your offense just by the way you try to protect that kid – um, as the freshman, but it almost seems like their skill sets make kind of make it the opposite way. I think you 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 may put might put Jack Cohn in a more conservative offense because he's he's better as a as a pocket passer, and whereas Tyler Buckner, um, you, you feel confident in maybe trying to take on the, a full spread offense and using his his skill sets in more ways. So it's it's a it's a very strange sort of dichotomy between the two, and maybe we just don't have a true understanding of what 
what Jack Cohn's skill set is because he went to Wisconsin. Maybe if he, he, he would, we would view him differently if he played in a different offense and, and has those abilities. We just haven't seen them yet. I think the guy that kind of jumped out at me that just came out of the portal that I thought would have been a easier fit was Hendon Hooker from Virginia Tech. You know, Notre Dame, he certainly had the high academics because it came down to Hendon Hooker and Avery Davis in that class right. as to which quarterback they were going to take. And he's been able to throw the ball and run it. He just hasn't been able to stay healthy all the time. And maybe the health thing was a – but then Jack Cohn got hurt too, so – I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I mean, I know from talking to Cone's high school coach that Tennessee was in on Jack Cone. He said he said basically since the day he entered the transfer portal. So I don't know if Tennessee itself preferred Jack Cone over Hendon Hooker. I mean, that's a question we won't have an answer for. They obviously ended up with Hendon Hooker after Jack Cone came to Notre Dame, but um, maybe even Tennessee would opt the other way. And who knows who's going to end up being more right in that we'll have to wait and see how that plays out but I thought um, that was sort of interesting to know that both of those schools were or that school was in on both of those quarterbacks next question is from uh ask Chris ask Chris oh man at Chris Fleck one <laughs> do you think Nick Saban took the foot off the gas simply because he wants Notre Dame in the playoff every year he knows he can beat us nine times out of ten <laughs> and I know previous years do not sway the way sway the committee but at some point our blowouts will come back to bite us and for those listening at home i didn't finish that question before eric hansen put his hands over his face (laughs) i don't even know where to start here i don't i i'm not sure if he's serious i guess that's my first reaction yeah and maybe he's not serious i hope not Um, (laughs) because i think if if you perceive that Alabama t- took their foot off the gas and there's plenty of people that perceive that you just want to get into your next game. You want to get it to your next game healthy. So w- what good is it going to be to have people out there that are in a position to get injured? You want to shorten the game at that point, if you're Nick Saban and get into the championship game with all your players. Um, as far as the other stuff, I- I'll just general do this in general terms. I can understand why Notre Dame fans are skeptical of certain things about the future of their team and so forth. And I think there's some healthy skepticism. And then I think there's this, and I don't want to, I don't want to use the term PTSD because that's a very serious condition, Right. but it's kind of whatever the sports version of the sky is falling and there's a can of corn going to hit me in the head. I think there's too much of that going on with Notre Dame fans to kind of see what the possibilities still are in terms of their program. So I'm not, I'm really not trying to belittle this person. I do hope it was kind of a joke question and, you know, that we just weren't able to see the sarcasm font in it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I'm not so sure I buy the whole concept that Nick Saban called off the dogs. One, that's not necessarily his, his MO. And part of the reason Alabama didn't score as much in the second half is because Notre Dame had the ball so long. Like Notre Dame had the ball pretty much the entire fourth quarter. Alabama scored. Alabama was stopped on his first drive of the second half. I don't think you're, you're going to say that they called off the dogs on the first drive of the second half. And then they, then they scored on their second drive to go up 28 to seven. And so that point, um, they had one more drive that started in the third quarter, ended in the fourth quarter, 
that they get a field goal on. Um, and then so after that, Notre Dame forces them to punt once, but otherwise Notre Dame has the ball the rest of the game because they onside kick and get the ball back. So there weren't that many possessions that Alabama like failed to score on to sort of call off the dogs. Now maybe you think they weren't as aggressive on defense um, because they didn't want to give up big plays. Uh, maybe that's the case, but I, I'm just not sure. I, I, I'm just not sure that that was that Alabama did like Notre Dame a favor to keep the game closer than it could have been. I'm not, I, I just think Alabama had control of the game and, um, Notre Dame's offense just stayed on the field so long that it, it didn't give Alabama as many opportunities. And that was, I mean, that was part of what Notre Dame hoped would work in the first half, and it just didn't work because it was hard. They didn't stop Alabama's defense, and I don't know that or Alabama's offense. And I'm not sure that Al, Notre Dame's defense did that much better of a job in the second half than the first half. But um, I just, I don't think it was like a an obvious like. And I mean, Nick Saban in the four, I think it was the it was the fourth quarter where he got a, a personal foul or unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for being so mad. Like so, I mean, if he was calling out the dogs, why is he so upset? Like so, I don't know. I just don't totally buy that. I think that I think that's more of a perception than a reality thing, in my my opinion. And not well, yeah, Desmond Howard was adamant about that on ESPN, but I think that's just who Desmond Howard is. I, I think that. I'll be critical of him. I've never been impressed with him in terms of his preparation and so forth. And he lets his fandom get in the way of clear perceptions about teams. And I don't think you can do that. If you, I mean, it's for one thing, if he's happy that Michigan made the playoff, if that ever happens, but, but it's another thing to demean schools that you don't like and, and then shape the perception in a way that really isn't reality. Full disclosure, I didn't see the fourth quarter and I haven't yet <laughs> because as Tyler knows, I had a power outage get me twice during the game. Uh, move locations, had a move location a third time. By that time, the game is over. I also DVR'd the game, but if your DVR doesn't have power, it doesn't record. And so at some point I will see the fourth quarter and can address the gas question better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I debriefed Eric after the game of what happened. <laughs> Eric called me when I, I was in the press box to tell me that the second, uh, the second location. So he lost power before the game at his house and then went somewhere else to watch the game. And then he, he called me towards the end of the game and informed me that he had lost power at the second location and was on his way to a hotel to, to finish his work. Uh, and so I was debriefing him on the the fourth quarter, but that first call, the game was hadn't, hadn't totally ended yet. So he's like, "Has it ended yet?" And I said, "No, they're still they're still trying to score." At the end, it was the very last drive. Um, Full disclosure: the the hotel after midnight that night lost its cable TV the next couple of days. There was no TV, so <laughs> I was just moments away from another disaster. Yeah. Eric, Eric was in a tough spot. It's too bad I didn't have, like, spare keys for my apartment that he could have had access to because I wasn't here, so you could have certainly came here, but he was in a tough spot uh, <laughs> during that game. Um, next question we have is um, from at Stanley in Tampa 2. Which situation do you think would have given Notre Dame the best chance to win a national championship this year? A fully healthy Jarrett Patterson, Kevin Austin, and Braden Lindsay, or trading Ian Book for either Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields? That is a very interesting question. And uh, the austin Lindsay one is interesting, but I think the only way I would pick that is if 
you got the best what we think Lindsay and Austin can be. Right. And that's not necessarily guaranteed that they were going to turn into those players. But but if if what we thought was possible for both of them, I might have picked that option. I thought Zeke Corral played well enough in the national championship game. So my pick was Trevor Lawrence um, trading that out because Trevor Lawrence can make throws that Ian Book can't. And I think that would have helped Notre Dame. I don't think it would have won the game, but I think it would have helped Notre Dame be more competitive offensively. Yeah, I, I would opt for either of the quarterbacks as well. I think with all respect to Ian Book, he's just not – he isn't the, the quarterback that those guys are. And I think if, when you have that kind of quarterback, and we've talked about it before, like what's holding Notre Dame back? Notre Dame needs a quarterback like that to win a national championship. Notre Dame isn't isn't in a position to win national titles like, like Alabama did when – um, AJ McCarron was the quarterback or, or someone like that. I think they, they got they have to have difference makers at quarterback NFL level difference makers at quarterback. Um, and for as much as Ian book did for Notre Dame and as much as he gave to Notre Dame and how much he grew as a player, um, he just wasn't quite that. And so I, I would have opted for the, the quarterback um, to give Notre Dame a best chance because you, you can just make so many things happen from that position. Next question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. Will Notre Dame ever win a national football championship with Coach Kelly calling all the shots? When <laughs> <laughs> this is a question you you famously ask, uh, I don't know that you necessarily say Kelly, but you all you like to ask our guests this question a lot. So I think it's right, and that's where I was going to start with this. <laughs> is that I think I've gotten one no in all the guests we asked. Now I don't ask all of them. Right. So I ask a lot of them, especially if it's like a national media person or if it's even a former Notre Dame player, sometimes I'll ask them. Right. And we've gotten one no, and I think it might have been Malik Zaire that was the no. Um, but I, I think it's certainly possible. I think it's very difficult. Um, and, and I will say this, Brian Kelly, I would feel – really good about him being the one that's calling the shots because I think Brian Kelly is convinced that he can do it. I mean, I covered a coach when I first switched over to cover Notre Dame football, Bob Davey was the coach and Bob Davey would complain about all their injuries. He'd say our schedule's too tough. We need to play more directional schools. You know, there was always the thing about the academics and stuff. And I think Brian Kelly feels like he can not only overcome those things, but he's working to try to overcome them. And I'm going to have a story in the next couple of weeks of one of the things that's helping them on the recruiting trail overcome things. Are, are there more obstacles to getting there than there are for a lot of other teams? Absolutely. I, I asked Mike Denbrock, who had been at Notre Dame a couple of different times, how many of the top 100 players can Notre Dame recruit? And, and it's a little bit of a tricky question. I, I'd asked Tom Lemming that question maybe a decade ago, and he said 70. And I think in terms of admissions, that is the correct answer. In terms of being able to have a player that's going to survive at Notre Dame in the classroom and culturally, that number is much smaller and that's the number that Mike Denbrock gave me, and that's 25. 
Well, Notre Dame has to get a larger percentage of those 25 players. Yeah, they need they need like 10 to 15 of those guys. <laughs> right. Well, and they also need to hit on um their keep doing their player development plan and getting the Jeremiah Wusu Cormos of the world that go from three star to all American. So they need both of those things going on. They need to be really good about character. And again, this the story that I'm going to be doing in the next couple of weeks will address that. You know, you don't need to be losing people to, you know, laziness about going to class or getting in trouble with the law. Um, you know, uh, the, probably the best example of getting a five-star in school and then it not working out is Aaron Lynch. You know, Aaron Lynch wasn't a guy that had great test scores or a GPA, and he didn't flunk out. But after being here less than one academic year, decided, you know what, it's too hard to do the work here, and car- culturally I'm not a fit, and I'm out of here. So what good did it get do you to get him in the door in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And, and the 10 to 15 of the top 100, I, I, that, that's probably not realistic. And it, it would probably be more of like who Notre Dame thinks are the top 100 recruits um, and getting those guys. Which no- But if you could get seven or eight of them, right. I mean, that's high four stars and some five stars. And, you know, that's that's a difference – that four-star category is what throws everything because that basically goes from the number 32 player in the country to number 270. Right. And that's that's the difference between end of the first round and coming to a camp as a Mr. Irrelevant free agent. <laughs> that's a huge talent difference. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's why I say top 100. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I've, I've said before that I think that and I, I, I expressed it, I think, the morning after the, the Alabama loss on Twitter that I think there are guys in Clems- at Clemson that Notre Dame could have as students here and be successful, and there are successful players there. So I think there are certainly more guys out there um, that make it achievable, that you don't, have to, you don't have to change who you are as Notre Dame to, to, to get to that that level to win a national championship. I mean, if I, if I had to bet, I would say no, just because that's the odds, but I, I do believe that it can happen. And I think it can happen under uh, Brian Kelly. I, one thing that I'm, I guess I'm, I think leads me toward that. And I guess it's, it's tough. And I'm not sure if I could totally sell anyone on this, but I, I don't believe his public frustration with the, the narrative, the quote unquote narrative that obviously, drove him up the wall the week of the champion or the, the college ball playoff semifinal. I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of his understanding of where Notre Dame needs to keep pushing. I think he knows what Notre Dame needs to do. I think he is aware of that. Um, can he do more to make that more obvious? I think so. I think it's a, to me, it's a gut check time for him as a recruiter. I think we we've been pretty clear that Brian Kelly can be a bit better recruiter. Um, and I think he, some of that responsibility falls on him. And I think it also falls on making sure you're making the right staff hires um, that are those kinds of guys as recruiters as well. And Marcus Freeman falls in line with that. He's, he's a very um, respected recruiter. So I think that's, that's the right kind of move. And whoever is the new safeties coach needs to be a great recruiter. Um, So I think that 
that has to be a priority. And I think it's, it is attainable, but it just cannot slip even the slightest because that, that, that's when you end up getting top 250 guys and not top 100 guys. And that can make all the difference in the world. So I think, uh, I think it's possible. It's not going to be easy. Um, and I, I, I do believe for whatever reason that Brian Kelly understands what it takes and is willing to push for that. Um, and if he doesn't, I think, I mean, that falls on him. I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy the, the, what I would say the narrative of that Notre Dame needs to change who it, who it is, who it is as a, as a university and who it's letting in at, on a, on a wide basis to compete with Alabama and Clemson and Ohio state. I, I, I don't, I don't buy into that because then Notre Dame loses sort of its special, what it, what it believes is its special, um, what, what makes it special. Um, and, and you can't, you can't like push that for, for some guys and then not push it for other guys. It just doesn't work that way. It has to, it has to be a special place to, to grow yourself as a student, as, as it is a, a football player. Otherwise it, the whole, the whole thing doesn't kind of work, work together in my opinion. Uh, next question is from at Irish fan 102. What moonshot ideas do you um, have to close the gap between the big three that doesn't contradict the university standards, more international recruiting and an emphasis on transferring talent, talent, et cetera. We hear a lot about what we don't do. What can we do outside the box? What we won't do. Sorry. What can we do outside of the box? I don't know that the concepts are moonshot or out of the box things, but I like the way this questioner thinks that, Hey, let's consider some out of the box things too. For me, I think, um, there's a lot of little things that can happen and have been happening. And one of those is finishing up the Goog expansion. It's the, the infrastructure that makes it easier for players to be student athletes. They'll have a, a study area there. Also feeding the team becomes easier. You know, they've already, uh, there's going to have, they're going to have their own weight room with the Goog expansion rather than sharing it with the other sports. Um, I think all those things help and certainly the indoor facility help. Uh, so I, again, I don't think they're, I guess maybe they're a moonshot in the era of pandemic pandemic because people aren't throwing the checks, blank checks around quite as liberally during this time. And certainly athletic departments are, um, you know, suffering the, the other things just related to recruiting. And again, I want to emphasize, you know, people feel like this is an admissions thing. Notre Dame doesn't have majors to hide in and they don't have, you have to compete in classrooms. Even if you're getting tutoring help, you have to be really, you know, all in on the academic part of it, or you're not going to survive. So you could certainly let a lot more players in, but they're not, they're not going to last. They'll be here a semester or two, and then they're going to be uh, looking at a junior college. Um, but I think some things that aren't moonshot wide is I think Notre Dame hit on this is get elite measurable speed. And, and they need to do that, especially at the wide receiver position. And I think you have to, I, you know, I don't like to be critical of assistants, especially if I don't know them well. And I get this question in chat a lot is what's Del Alexander doing? You know, is he a good assistant coach and a developer of talent? 
I think he's got something to prove this year because he's got twitchy, fast athletes and, and some that are younger, and he needs to make sure that those guys reach their potential, you know, that it doesn't take five years like Javon McKinley, who was a top 100 guy. Right. You know, uh, he needs to make sure, and he's got the numbers that if he misses on one, there's others that he needs to. And I think that's going to help Notre Dame modernize its offense as having those fast, twitchy receivers uh, to go along with those big, thumping tight ends that give you a different dimension. So those would be my ideas. Yeah, I'm not sure that I, I really had many moonshot ideas either. I think kind of to our last question, I, I think it just requires a constant dedication to recruiting. And um, I know it seems sort of cliche in college football. Everyone, Well, everything comes back to recruiting when they even talk about the Shamrock series uniforms and stuff like that. Like that's more about recruiting than anything else. But it really – you have to be dedicated to it. 365 days a year, keep your sanity, but it has to be at, at the front of your mind. Um, and if you aren't willing to commit to that, you're going to be stuck not being able to get over the hump. I think if they weren't committed to that, maybe one way to get around that would be, I think grad transfer quarterbacks is a, is a way that something that Notre Dame hasn't tapped into. And if they're not able to get, because I mean, I think we're all, we both agree that getting the elite quarterbacks is, is something that can significantly change where Notre Dame is heading. Um, and obviously that's not easy to do relying on grad transfers because you're talking about guys that were, were passed up somewhere else in those, those situations normally, or looking for better programs that uh, better profile programs than the schools they were at, um, that maybe guys that were overlooked and are actually better talent wise than what people thought they were. So maybe that is something they can do. I mean, obviously I don't know that would be something you would want to do. I think the preference would be to recruit, uh, elite five-star or high four-star quarterbacks on a consistent basis, on a yearly basis. Um, but if you're not doing that, I think the grad transfer market is a place that Notre Dame should look at quarterback. And, and I'm not sure, saying that like Jack Cohn is the example of what Notre Dame needs to do. I think they can probably aim higher in the future, potentially, if that's what they ought to do. But that would be something that I don't think is necessarily something that Notre Dame wants to do that it could consider um, um, moving forward if, if things sort of work out in that way. I'd even say other positions. I think Notre Dame ought to be looking at the grad transfer market at defensive end safety and cornerback in this cycle. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. And I think um, they are getting more aggressive in that. Obviously we saw in the last off season, they were able to do that. And you, the, the challenge of that is your hit right hit rate needs to be really high. Obviously it's, it's low cost in the sense that if they're only here for a year, so it's not like you're, your your risk isn't as high as missing on a, a recruit um, as a freshman and having that guy stuck in the program for four years. But um, you need to make sure that you're taking the right guys in those grad transfers because then it can lead to uh, – it can impact the rest of your roster too if you're taking the wrong guys and then get, they're getting past the playing time when, when guys that need to be developed uh, aren't being developed because of that. Uh, next question we have is from Chino at D underscore radio guy. What is a bigger curse being on the cover of Madden or being a freshman that Brian Kelly talks about after the first day of, he said spring practice, but I'm just going to say practice. So I don't think spring practice is when the freshmen get it brought up. And then he said, obviously I'm kidding, but not really. Ha ha. I don't know too much about curses. Um, <laughs> so I'll let you handle this one. I, I, I appreciate the creativity in that question, but I, I can't remember him 
mentioning somebody on the first day of practice that it's come back to bite him. I, I know in well, the I summertime, think, he was excited about Jordan Johnson, Jordan as Johnson well, yeah. Michael Mayer, and Chris Tyree, and two out of the three were really pretty dynamic for them. Um, but, again, he didn't say, boy, Jordan Johnson, he's doing great in summer school and all that. He just said athletically he's very gifted and he still is, but it was the other stuff that kind of held him back. It wasn't he got on the field and he couldn't compete. Yeah, no no other freshman like came to my mind as guys that I remember him being like super high on like the first day of practice and then just not hearing from them later on. There probably are other examples that just didn't come to mind. And I, I, I don't I, I think I think we probably deserve some of the blame for that because we asked Brian Kelly specifically about freshmen after after practices um, because we that's people want to know that kind of thing and right and we can't see it yeah no yeah we don't we don't know and so we're looking for answers and so maybe Brian Kelly answers with someone that to answer he, he answers the question although he may not truly be convinced that that kid's going to play right away or that's not even he might not even say that but once a kid gets mentioned everyone says oh man we got to look out for this guy I know I thought it was interesting that he was so high on Jordan Johnson and Michael Mayer and Chris Tyree right out of the gate this year, as opposed to the previous year when he was like playing down Kyle Hamilton, he did the, like the exact opposite thing, which was even more bizarre because we were at the practice where he intercepted the three passes in the, in the very first practice. So that obviously did, Kyle Hamilton didn't get jinxed there. Um, although Brian Kelly didn't exactly like uh, proclaim him as the next big player at Notre Dame after that practice either. So, I'm not sure that there's a history of this that's well documented in my mind. Maybe I could be proven wrong if someone wants to submit some. I think it was more Charlie than it is Brian. <laughs> some guys, but um, I think um, we're, we're welcome to any sort of names that they're willing to throw out there and give us sort of guidance on what they feel. And um, if they're wrong, they're wrong. I don't, I, I don't uh, hold that against them after, <laughs> after uh, early impressions. All right, last question after a long podcast for us today here, Eric, is from Bert Leonard at Bert2834. What is your adult beverage of choice? Full disclosure, I don't have adult beverages that much. Not that I'm religious or against it or whatever. It's just uh, I probably, you know, given my lifestyle, I probably don't drink enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so I'll keep it pretty simple, you know, because, um, the younger Eric Hansen had, would have had a wider variety, but I'll keep it simple. I like dark beer yep. and, uh, and my former sports editor brought over a bottle of expensive bourbon during the summer where we socially distanced, drink, drunk it, drank it <laughs> on my, uh, back deck. And I thought, boy, this is this is something I, I enjoyed that. So, and, and, and have you touched it since? I have not. Uh, <laughs> no, I, have not. I mean, that's just a reflection of how, uh, like, it's not something that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, 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 I uh, will enjoy my share of adult beverages. I, I, I try not to do it like on a, I don't do it like a much at home alone. kind of thing. Like it's more of a social thing. And obviously there's been less social, uh, events, although we, I've done some hangouts with friends uh, online and stuff like that, or social distance and, and those kinds of things. But I wanted to include this question, particularly after this week, which has been so busy, uh, because I, I think I'm going to partake in a few. Um, I, but I'm with you on the dark beer. That's 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 my go-to, my adult beverage of choice. I don't know that I have like 
a number one favorite of this is what I always go to. I like to try ones, a new ones. Yeah, as possible. Try new ones. Um, you might catch me drinking a luscious mound stout from uh, evil check brewery over here in Mishawaka, which isn't far from where I live. And I'm also a big fan just to give some people some names. I'm also a big fan of uh, the vanilla Java Porter from Atwater brewery in Detroit. I discovered that one at a, at a brew fest. That's another thing I like to do in the off season is go to a couple of brew fests. And I don't think that's happening this year due to COVID, but um, that's something that I, I tend to enjoy and kind of discover new beers at, at those kinds of events as well. All right. That's it for today's uh, marathon episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating and drop us a review. Um, we will switch to off season mode and space out our podcast, maybe a little bit more and, have it more due to newsworthy events when we get back to talk to you guys. So if there's more events in the next week, we'll maybe we'll come back at the end of next week or early the week following that. Um, but uh, stay with ndinsider.com for all your off season coverage needs. <laughs>